you are Locked On Jazz, your daily podcast on the Utah Jazz. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. It is Locked On Jazz for the 27th of February. The Jazz offense has not come off break yet. The Rockets were great. Mike D'Antoni says the best they've been. We'll look at those two things from last night. A thought on tanking and the problem that is Chris Paul, plus a Time Machine Tuesday. All coming up on today's edition of Locked on Jazz. How are you? I'm David Locke, radio voice of the Utah Jazz, Jazz NBA insider. Hope you are doing terrifically. Glad to have you aboard. This is Locked on Jazz, your daily podcast on the Utah Jazz, giving you insight, expertise, analysis, and maybe some geeky numbers, behind-the-curtain look, all that good stuff. Thanks so much. Appreciate all the five-star reviews on iTunes and other places. It is much, much appreciated. Uh, Today's show brought to you by Slow the Flow and Murdoch Hyundai at 4646 South State Street. So, Jazz fall to the Rockets last night. Mike D'Antoni, after the game, calls it the Rockets' best win of the season. It's an interesting comment. Uh, Coming off the back-to-back and playing without Capella, Anderson, and Gordon. And I think the other aspect of it is that the Jazz game plan worked pretty darn well. In fact, I think the Jazz game plan did what it wanted to do and was able to impact the game the way it wanted to, and then the Rockets still won without those guys. And to me, that's what jumps out as maybe the most impressive part about that game. The Rockets' offense last night, if I have uh, my numbers on the Rockets correctly, had... One of their worst offensive nights of the year. Uh, I'm not sure that's entirely right because the number doesn't add up to kind of where. No, I don't think that is entirely right. They actually have something's wrong. Oh, I know what it was. The Rockets' first half last night offensively was the worst first half of offense they've had all season long. So, I mean, that that's the level that the Jazz held them down last night was that that was the worst first. And then in that first half, though, the Jazz offense just wasn't good enough. That, that At halftime, you kind of knew you were in trouble. You know, they were two of whatever from three. The Jazz had stymied them. Uh, and then and the Jazz, you know, by that little 10-0 run, I think it was at the end of the second quarter, the Jazz hadn't made enough inroads. The Rockets last night had their 57th ranked Offensive outing of the year. The only times they've been worse were against the Boston Celtics, the Washington Wizards, and the Memphis Grizzlies. Those are their three other games all year long, and yet they won. And that's actually what's so interesting about this win streak is they've thrown up a few duds offensively against teams and stymied them defensively. That was the third best defensive outing the Rockets have put out all year. They had their eighth best against Sacramento. They had their first best against Cleveland in this win streak. They're they're defending. And they've had three of their worst ten offensive games during this win streak. So really interesting to see right now the league's best record and the Jazz 
game plan was to force Harden right, get him off the three-point line. They had the they they'd done a bunch of work on you know tendencies and and what seemed to impact the Rockets. And when when he doesn't shoot threes, is when they have their problems, uh, moderate problems that those are. Uh, they were thirty-three and four coming in. If he shoots ten threes or not, he took five last night. They're nine and six coming in when he takes nine or fewer. So the Jazz really, the Jazz held them to 40% of their shots as threes. It's one of the lowest outings of the season for them. 41%. They, they had only been lower, just doing this quickly, one, two, three, four. Four times all year had the Rockets taken a fewer percentage of their shots as threes. So, from a game plan standpoint, maybe because Capella, Anderson, and Gordon are missing, right? Like, that could be part of it. Remember, we the Jazz played the Rockets really, really well, and then Eric Gordon got hot and beat him in a previous matchup. But, to me, I, I look at last night's outing, defensively, the Jazz execute fabulously. Execute their plan, and the Rockets have enough firepower, enough wherewithal to be able, without three of their primary scorers, to get through it. And to that is another validation on how great the Rockets are. That, that's what jumps out to me. The, the secondary aspect is the Jazz offense is way off. Now, some of this is a... Reg- the Jazz are the weirdest team that I have maybe ever been around, and I'm trying to figure out why that is. And what I mean by that is the Jazz have had these stretches during the season where the three-point, the variance of their three-point shooting is is incredible. I mean, you go to the win streak, and you actually could, I think, go to the Detroit game all the way through Phoenix, or actually through... Even stop it at San Antonio. It's probably a a better. Uh, the Jazz hit on 125 of 288 threes in the for 43 percent in the four games since. The Jazz are 32 of 120 for 27 percent. So the same group of players with limited change, Jay Crowder's arrival can't be that much of it. And for 10 games, the Jazz shoot 43% from three, and for the last four, they shoot 27% for three. By the way, it is worth noting, if you put those two numbers together, you get 38.5, which is right about where the Jazz are for the season. But the three-point shooting recently is not good, and the offense has been bad. Since coming back from the break, the Jazz have not scored more than a point of possession uh, and have, have, have not been good defensively. I mean, not been good offensively. Defensively, they've been great. I mean, the run they're on defensively, since the Detroit game, the Jazz have only allowed one opponent to have an offensive rating higher than 102. Only two opponents to have an offensive rating higher than 100.8. And in all but six games, they've held opponents to 100 or lower. 
I mean, what the Jazz are doing defensively right now is is astronomical. So that's that's still and that was still prevalent last night. But the offense, which is really, I mean, I I I'd be interested to try to. I'm not smart enough to entirely do the math, but if the Jazz last night were seven of twenty nine from three, they were nine of thirty two the night before that. They were six of twenty five the night before that. Take them back up to their season average of thirty seven percent. By the way, that means we have one more night of regression to the mean. Take them back to their thirty seven percent. You know, do the Jazz suddenly? Win that game? No, but it's a it's a little closer, right? The Jazz last night should have hit eleven threes. Well, they might have won that game. It's you know basically the difference in the game is them not shooting their three point percentage. They were seven of twenty nine. They should have been ten point seven of twenty nine on their average. That would get them to a four three pointer. That would be twelve points. Then that game's different. The other thing that happened last night is I thought the Jazz, which we haven't seen a lot, and I think this is why Quinn was a bit fired up after the game. I, I thought they broke mentally. It was a two-play sequence that really changed the game where they broke mentally. And they don't do that very often. But Jarebko drives to the basket. The whistles were terrible last night. Not against the Jazz. Universally, I was talking to some people after the game, and I, I do think... Uh, I do think... That it's, and with, I'm, I'm pausing here. This is someone else's quote. But their comment was, this is the biggest problem with our product, is the officiating. And the only thought I have to that is that may be true. And I hope that Adam Silver and the crew, the NBA, is willing to try monumental overhauls. Uh my fundamental thought on the officiating flaw that is going on in the NBA, one is we've had a huge departure of the veteran officials. Though Mike Callahan's a veteran official, but I, I thought the other guys were awful last night. Uh, is I think it's hard to ask these guys to run up the floor with these guys. I've said this before. Uh, I would go to six officials, have them stay on their side of the floor, uh, and be able to follow the game in that way. I, I think asking these guys to play 48 minutes of officiating and run at the speed this game is being played with all the things that are going on is too much. Other people think we should go to four officials. Quite frankly, we shouldn't be doing what we're doing anymore, I think is a legitimate discussion point. Uh, that feels as though the there is a that we've maybe hit a breaking point there. Okay, so the Jazz are... The Jazz are leading or trailing 57-50. No, I think the Jazz... Well, Ariza... Actually, this is... Ariza hits back-to-back threes that I thought were corner threes, but I may have the wrong spot in the game. But to me, there were two plays, one of which, because Jarebko's not in the game for this... One is Jarebko drives to the basket, misses a shot, wants a foul call, doesn't get it, sits on the floor. Rockets run the other way while he's arguing. Hit hit a three in my memory. I could be wrong here. It doesn't seem to be pulling up on the play-by-play sheet like I expected. And 
And then the next play, yeah, and Bob, uh, Bob Mute hits a three. Or, no, he gets the pass off for the dunk that makes it 76-65. And I think on the play before that, or somewhere in there, Joe Ingles is running a route. And maybe these aren't back-to-back and they just feel that way. And you can visibly see him being held. And he gets no call. And he just kind of out of frustration stops his route. Donovan ends up taking a bad three. And it leads to a fast break basket the other way. I, I just thought for the – and then some of the passing. I thought the guys broke a little bit last night with the constant grabbing, constant holding, constant stuff that was going on with the officiating. I thought, I thought that had an impact last night. Today's show brought to you by Murdoch Hyundai, 4646 South State Street. I have the funniest story. I, I'm driving the – the Hyundai Sonata right now. It has the lane assist, so it basically drives itself. It has, you can put the cruise control where you say the, um, how far away you want to be from the car in front of you, and it will actually slow down on its own, so you have the cruise control set at 65, and the traffic slows down to 50, and it goes to 50, and it goes down to 35. It actually goes, I mean, it's incredible. It also has lane assist, so that it's reading the dotted lines on each side and keeps the car where it wants to be. I evidently drive a little bit further to the left in the lane than the car thinks is appropriate. And I came within an inch of taking the car in, thinking that it was pulling right and that there was something wrong. And only then did I realize that actually what's going on is the incredible technology and advancements that you can get on a Hyundai you think you could only get on like a $100,000 car. And it's pretty wild. It, you got to keep holding on to the steering wheel. You still drive the car but it because it beeps at you and gets mad at you if you don't. Uh, but it's, it's incredible uh, what the technology that these Hyundais have. You get the 100,000-mile Hyundai Assurance uh, as well. You got the Murdoch guarantee of no regrets. Uh, if you are shopping for a car right now, I would take a second and add Hyundai into the list of uh, things you might look at because the the model the quality that these guys put out there day in and day out uh, and the the technology wh- what you get for your dollar is is just incredible. They got a new SUV that just came out too, the Kona. I haven't seen it. It's supposed to be nice. Uh, so if you're looking for an SUV, I'd strongly suggest Santa Fe. I'm driving the Sonata right now. It's so my daughter said, well, the other day, it feels very fancy. It's got a lot of room, drives well, and then it's got all of the cool stuff. And I believe that the Golden West Credit Union, at least on the website, the 1.99% sales event is still going on. So that's awesome. It's all over at Murdoch Hyundai at 4646 South State Street. Say hi to Blake. They're also located in Logan and in Linden. Murdoch Hyundai, 4646 South State Street. All right, I wanted to talk about um, two things in the NBA. Uh, I feel like you want a larger discussion about what's wrong with the offense rather than just me saying they're not hitting threes. All right, so let me give you a thought. I don't know if I really... So one is, okay, let's... Donovan's only been okay recently. That's... And there's a large burden on him, and that's fine, but that's... um, That's true. And maybe... 
you know, we have to. That's part of a rookie going through the process. Is suddenly facing a team a third and a fourth time. You're, he's not. He's not getting through the pick and roll, splitting him anymore. He's not getting to the rim the same way. Teams are. Teams have changed how they're guarding him. It's having an impact. So, um, you know, that's the first one. Uh, since the Memphis game, where I think he was relatively right from the flu, he's shooting thirty-eight. Last eight games, he's shooting thirty-eight percent and thirty-four percent from three. So it's not quite right. Um, if you want to back it up one more game just to give him the benefit of the doubt, he's 39% and 34% from three in the last seven. He's still averaging 23 points a game. It's just not efficient. So that's significant. Uh, the other thing that's taking place is, and I, I don't know if this is, I'm trying to figure out why this team's having such wild swings. There is not, it kind of goes back to the natural order of the basketball universe. There's not a natural second score. Donovan's become the primary score, right? He's taking 20 shots a game. That's pretty well set. And there's not, who's, who's going to take the second most amount of shots on the team? Okay, that's not entirely clear. Who's going to take the, and so I think that might lead to when it's all clicking and running, rolling together, it's beautiful and fabulous and Everyone's in the rhythm, and then, but when it goes awry a little bit, and the rhythm is broken, it's not always clear who the next guy is getting the next shot is. So last night, Donovan takes fifteen. Jay Crowder takes fifteen. Really, is Jay Crowder our second? I don't think so. Rubio took ten. Is he third? Maybe. It's not great. If that's the answer. Joe Ingles takes six, but he's not really a you know. So the offense has to generate the opportunities for everybody. And when they're on when the guy when when you're on the floor and suddenly it's not working right, I think guys are then suddenly playing a little bit out of their skill set and thus it leads to wild swings to of performance. That that's my thought. You can take it uh, for what it is. Um, let's go with two other conversations I wanted to have before we do Time Machine Tuesday. One, at the end of the game last night, Chris Paul spins the ball at Mike Callahan. I, I thought the officials had a bad night. But he spins the ball at Mike Callahan. The ball doesn't get to Mike Callahan. He then later throws the ball at Mike Callahan through traffic at Ricochet's Austin people. This is after the game. Chris Paul is the head of the players' union for the players. You want to know why we have a problem with the player-official relationship. It's because of that. It's because of that guy right there who's the lead guy. If that's how the lead guy of your union is going to act and... Treat officials, why wouldn't every other guy in the league do that? Again, I didn't think they were great last night. But I think Chris Paul's got a higher level he's got to hold to as the head of the players. So, I I just think that's significant. And the league will not do anything about that today. But I think we should be hearing about some sort of fine or something, and we won't. But that petulant behavior after the game last night 
is where a lot of the misbehavior is coming from when that's your lead guy. Second thing is tanking. So I have actually never been one who thinks that tanking has been a problem in the NBA. I, I first off fight the opening premise of the discussion. The opening discuss, premise of the discussion is your team's not trying to win. Nah, that's, yes, in the micro short-term version of the next 25 games when you're already out of the playoffs, your team is not trying to win, but your team is in fact trying to win by getting a better draft pick for the future and winning. And I think every single fan base who's been through it understands that and is willing to be a part of that. Secondarily, I I just don't think it's that big an issue. I, I think it's something where you have a 24-hour news cycle and ESPN has to write a lot of things and it's ends up being a really nice focus piece, and so you can write a lot of things about it and have all sorts of discussions. I just don't buy it's that big an issue. I don't think the people in Atlanta are bothered by it this year. I don't think the people in Brooklyn are bothered by it this year. I And the third thing is the answer to it is altering the draft, but since free agency is in, has incredible inequities to it already, and signing players for long-term prospects are have incredible, or trading for players who then you have to re-sign has inequity. You take away the incentive of the draft, and you really take for a lot of teams the only way they can go acquire talent. Now, with that said, and that's really where I fundamentally sit, the stratification that we have in the league this year feels more significant than I've ever seen it and I think is going to probably have long-lasting impact on how we view the draft tanking and I wouldn't be surprised if it doesn't lead to some sort of knee-jerk change in to the draft and I don't think that'll be good for Utah um, it might be good for the league I what's going on right now is this incredible thing where we have eight teams that all have between 18 and 20 wins and are going to try to hold at that number. And in turn, they uh, – you know – Memphis has lost 10 in a row. Phoenix has lost 10 in a row. Orlando's lost 6 in a row. Brooklyn's lost 8 of 10. Chicago's lost 8 of 10, only because I think they've some of them played each other. It's pretty monumental what's taking place. And it's not great for the league when a night like last night, if you're the Jazz and you're looking at the playoff picture and you just kind of know, all right, well, those three teams aren't going to win. So... um. I don't I don't think tanking is as big a problem as everyone's going to make it, but this feels as though it's going to have a lasting impact. We're going to get closer to doing the Mike Zarin wheel, which equalizes the draft for every team over a whatever 15-year period of time or something, and I don't think that's good for us. Just just keep an eye on that. Uh Maybe I'm wrong, and and you as a fan are really 
bothered by it, but we basically tanked for a year, and I don't think anyone thought anything less of it. Like, right? We we went through it. We did it. But it the, the flaw when everyone discusses it, well, they're not trying to win. That's not true. You're trying to win in three years or four years. But you're – so in a sense, you're not trying to win today. But in the long term, you are. Today's show is brought to you by Slow the Flow. Slow the Flow has plenty of things you can do to conserve water in your home, like shortening your shower time. The numbers don't lie. If you shorten by just one minute or less every day, you'd save 1,875 gallons of water every year. Even better, if you switch to an ultra-low flow showerhead, you'd save as much as 2.5 gallons every year. We're all big fans of Utah, so do Utah a favor and head to slowtheflow.org and find out the ways you can save water. It's something we all can do. We sometimes have big droughts. We sometimes have big dumps. But we need to still conserve our water as best we can. A five-minute shower used 12 to 25 gallons of water. A full tub uses 70 gallons. Do all the little things. Take your part. Be a part of it. If we all did our parts, we can do make it all a little bit better. Slowtheflow.org has plenty of ways you can conserve water in the home. So slow the flow. Save H2O. All right, Time Machine Tuesday. I got the bag here. It's got all the years in it. Let's see what we get. Are we ready? Here we go. And we pulled 1980. Ooh, we were not good. Let's see what we get. 1980. So the 80-81 season will do because I think I have 79 there. Daryl Griffith is our rookie having a big year, so that'll be interesting. All right, the Jazz are 28 and 54 that year. They're the 18th ranked offense and the 20th ranked defense, but there were only 23 teams. So let's go see what we did on February 27th. We played the Philadelphia 76ers at home and lost. 87 to 83. We played that game in front of 12,449. Adrian Dantley led the way for the Jazz with 24. Points and 12 rebounds. Daryl Griffith had 21 points. Alan Bristow had 9. Ben Poquette had 8. Carl Nick, 7. Wayne Cooper, 6. Jeff Wilkins, 4. Ricky Green, 4. Jeff Judkins was on that team. For the 76ers, that was a classic Sixer team. They went to 54-13. and 13. We put up a yeoman effort. We only lost to the great Sixer team by four that night. I'll bet those 12,000 people were fired up in Salt Lake City. Bobby Jones had 20. Julius Irving had 16. Daryl Dawkins, 13. Andrew Tony had 10. Mo Cheeks, 9. Steve Mix, 8. Lionel Holland, 7. Caldwell Jones, 2. Clint Richardson and Ollie Johnson. I do not remember who you were. So the Jazz lose to the 76ers. By the final score of 87-83, the Jazz go to 25-43. and 43. The Sixers go to 54-13. and 13. The Jazz would win three more games the rest of the year. Were they tanking? I don't know. Uh, the... They would lose... That would be... They would lose... They'd only win three more games the rest of the way. Daryl Griffith was the rookie on that team and had a 
he had the best rookie season we've seen since Donovan. 21 points a game, four rebounds, two assists, shot 46%, only 19% from three because he didn't shoot him much then. And Adrian Dantley, though, carried the load on that team. He had 31. Ron Boone played 52 games for the Jazz that year. Billy McKinney was on that team, played 35 games. I didn't realize that Billy McKinney and Ron Boone were teammates. That'll be a conversation for them. So that wraps us up today. That is your Time Machine Tuesday. That is Locked on Jazz. Hope you're having a great day. Thanks for tuning in and enjoying your daily Utah Jazz podcast. Remember, Locked on NBA is now five days a week as well. So grab a hold of today's edition and enjoy it on the Locked on Podcast Network.